You are Locked On Jets, your daily New York Jets podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to the Locked On Jets podcast for Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. I'm your host, John B. from gangreennation.com. I hope you had a good long weekend. This is a daily podcast covering the New York Jets. We have new episodes five days a week, Monday through Friday, through most of the year, although I took yesterday off for President's Day. If you enjoy this show, subscribe to it where podcasts are found, and we will deliver new episodes to you as they are posted each day. Also, leave this show a good review if you enjoy it. And I say it every day, this is part of the Locked On Podcast Network. We have a network of podcasts covering each team in major sports. They post shows Monday through Friday, so if you're a fan of a team in another sport like the Knicks or the Yankees or any other New York team, be sure to check out that team's Locked On Podcast. I say every day that this podcast is part of the Locked On Podcast Network, but I seldom explain what it is, so I just wanted to take a second to encourage you to check out other Locked On podcasts. Of course, check out Locked On Jets first. Anyway, on today's show, we are going to look back at recent Jets history. This is another important offseason for the Jets. I say that every day heading into the offseason, and in a way, it's kind of a silly thing to say because every offseason is important. But if you look at where the Jets are right now, coming off a 2-14 and season, the second worst team in the NFL in 2020, and you look at the resources they have, you can see that this is going to be the type of offseason that either sets you up for success or failure in the years ahead. And the Jets have had a number of those offseasons recently where they've had a lot of resources and they've failed to capitalize on them. And that's what I want to focus on today. I want to focus on some of the past failures because although this is technically Joe Douglas's third season that he's entering and technically this is his second full offseason, really his first year the offseason was done by the time he arrived. He had a chance to make a few moves on the edges to try and improve the roster. But, last, but it was too late for him to make any major moves to overhaul the roster. And last year, because the Jets had spent so much money in 2019, there really were not a lot of resources to upgrade the roster. So this is really his first chance to make his mark on this roster. This is, from go- going forward, this is Joe Douglas's team. He is responsible for the product on the field. Now, that does not necessarily mean he needs to turn it around completely in one year. But the last two years have really been the residue of the Mike McCagnan era. And we're going to talk about Mike McCagnan, but I also want to talk about some of the general managers who came before Mike McCagnan. What I'm going to discuss are the reasons these general managers failed and the lessons they can teach Joe Douglas. And we're actually going to go way back. We're going to go back to Mike Tannenbaum, who was the predecessor of McCagnan's predecessor. Tannenbaum took over the general manager job in a bit of an odd move. If you remember, or you know, a lot of Jets fans were not following the team back in 2006 when Tannenbaum took over. Essentially what happened was Tannenbaum had been in the Jets front office since Bill Parcells. Parcells had helped to bring him in. And 
he was working under then general manager Terry Bradway. And in the 2006 offseason, or the offseason after the 2005 season, heading into the 2006 season, the Jets kind of replaced Bradway and Tannenbaum. They kind of flipped their roles where Tannenbaum was working as an assistant to Bradway and the Jets elevated Tannenbaum and gave Bradway an assistant job. Although not, it was Bradway did not take over Tannenbaum's old job. Tannenbaum was really a guy who managed the salary cap. And Bradway moved into a more senior scouting role, but he was not the general manager anymore. And it, if you go back to that time, there were rumors that Bradway had wanted the Jets to go in a different direction when they were making a head coaching hire, and Tannenbaum had been behind Eric Mangini, who eventually got the job, although those were just rumors. I mean, I could not tell you whether or not they were true. All I can tell you about is that they were rumors. Tannenbaum actually got off to a very good start. His first draft in 2006 was one of the best in team history. They took DeBrickishaw Ferguson and Nick Mangold in the first round. They had two first-round picks. They had their own first-round pick, which was high because they had had a very bad 2005 season, but they also had a late first round pick, which they acquired in a trade involving John Abraham, who was a pass rusher. So they ended up really setting up their offensive line going forward, but they also made some good picks later on in the draft. They got four solid role players in the later rounds. They got Eric Smith in the third round, who was a good sub package player in the early Rex Ryan days. They got Leon Washington and Brad Smith who were both solid offensive weapons. Leon Washington, who was actually joining the Jets coaching staff as an assistant. Um, but both guys were both playmakers, both good special teamers. And they got Drew Coleman in the later rounds of the draft, who was a decent sub-package guy uh, for the Jets for a year or two. So they really did a great job the first draft. And the second draft, they also did very well. The second draft was really about quality over quantity. Tannenbaum traded up a couple times, and they got Darrell Rebus and David Harris. So they, they did a great job drafting early on. Now, Tannenbaum's first season with the Jets, they were expected to be the worst team in the NFL, and they kind of caught some momentum on a bad schedule. They had one of the worst, I think they had the worst schedule in the NFL that year. If not, it was one of the worst. And they ended up going 10-6. and six. And they had a lot of cap space heading into that offseason, and they really did not spend it. And 2007 was not a good year. The 10 and 6 2006 season was kind of a mirage. So the Jets fell back to 4 and 12 in 2007. And then 2008 came and they had, went on a big offseason spending spree. They brought in Calvin Pace from Arizona, an edge rusher. They brought in Damian Woody from Detroit to play right tackle. They brought in Alan Fanica from Pittsburgh to play guard. They brought in Tony Richardson at fullback. Chris Jenkins was acquired in a trade from Carolina. He was a solid nose tackle. And, of course, they made the move for Brett Favre, which, you know, you could defend as a reasonable gamble at the time, but it ultimately did not work out. And in my opinion, the Favre era has been misremembered because I think that there is a great sentiment out there that Mangini paid the price because Favre got injured and Mangini was treated unfairly. And I think a lot of that is people forgetting Mangini's shortcomings. And Mangini was fired after the 2008 season. Rex Ryan came in, went to the AFC Championship game his first two years, and then things kind of fell apart from that point. 
And it's funny because in retrospect, I kind of look back at the Favre trade as one of the signals that the Tannenbaum era was not meant to last for the long haul. And it kind of seems like ownership was behind that trade. Mangini's given subsequent interviews where he stated he was against it because they felt like they were building a solid team. And you again, I think you can defend that move. I think that move was defensible because they did not have a quarterback at the time. Chad Pennington had suffered numerous shoulder injuries and was very limited at that point. Kellen Clemens was their young up-and-coming quarterback, but it was Kellen Clemens. He was not up-and-coming at all. He really did not amount to anything in the NFL, although he did have a long career as a backup. So Favre was coming off a really good year with Green Bay in 2007, and I think it was defensible. He had a really good year after the year after in Minnesota. But, you know, you look back on that, and it was kind of a foreshadowing of things to come with the Jets, where it kind of felt like they were trying to make splash moves. And that especially became the case later in the Tannenbaum era, where critical needs were neglected. And, you know, a couple of years later, they ended up trading for Tim Tebow, which again was a move that even at the time, Favre was defensible at the time. And I think in retrospect, you know, he got hurt. Who knows how differently that thing, that thing plays out if Favre gets hurt. But the Tebow trade in retrospect, even at the time, very few people thought that that made any sense for the Jets. And they started neglecting core needs. And ultimately what happened, I think, in the Tannenbaum era is they just neglected, they just totally forgot about the future. It was all about making flashy moves and it was about ignoring the long term. And what happened was the Jets started trading away a bunch of draft picks. You know, they had that great 2007 draft where they were very short on picks because they kept trading up. And they ended up with Darrell Revis and David Harris in those drafts. But in subsequent drafts, they were short on picks because they were trading up and because they were trading those picks for veteran players. And ultimately, they struck out on a lot of their picks. It's very The draft is a very inexact science. And one of the things I've seen in, in studies that I've read is the thing that really separates the good drafting teams from the bad drafting teams is just the number of picks that they have because drafting is such an inexact science. And Tannenbaum, again, was so focused on the short term, and that sometimes manifested itself in trading draft picks for established veteran players. And that became a problem because the Jets did have veterans who eventually got old and needed to be replaced, and they did not have a steady stream of young talent entering the organization who could have replaced them. But Tannenbaum also constantly was playing games with the salary cap, he was constantly restructuring deals, trying to create short-term cap space so he could be active in free agency. And that also backfired because some of those old, some of those guys who got old, like a Calvin Pace, like a Bart Scott, the Jets suddenly lost the ability to cut. And those guys ended up costing a lot of money. So they also lacked cap space to replace the players and they could not cut those players. It was kind of akin to just spending too much on the credit card. They kept restructuring these deals, pushing cap hits into the future, making those cap hits bigger as players' skill sets were declining. So the player, they were getting less and less performance from these players, and the cap hits were bigger and bigger. And ultimately, the Jets ended up in a situation that was kind of similar to the situation the Philadelphia Eagles or the New Orleans Saints are facing right now. After the 2011 lockout, the salary cap went down. And what Tannenbaum was trying to do to some extent could work if the cap kept going up because then at least every year you'd have relief. But when the cap went down, this is really where the Jets got themselves into trouble because now they had all these 
expensive deals with these players who did not justify it at all, players who could not be cut. They did not have draft picks, and they, you know, they were stuck. And it's funny that it's happened to the Saints and the Eagles because, as I've mentioned, Tannenbaum was a guy who came up running the salary cap for the Jets. And the Eagles and Saints both have guys running their guys who are general managers who were viewed as cap gurus before they ascended to the general manager job. And my theory on this is that I think sometimes these cap gurus, when they get into GM jobs, get too confident in their own ability to work out of any situation. And then you find yourself in a, in a spot like this year or after 2011, where the cap goes down unexpectedly and you have all these bad contracts on your book. It just doesn't work out. And ultimately, I think the lesson of Tannenbaum as much as anything is that you have to think of the long term. You have to think of the future, even as you're building, even as you're trying to win that year. You have to at least consider and try and save some resources for the next year because the Jets got themselves into a situation under Tannenbaum where they built a good base, but then that base started to deteriorate and the team became less and less capable of winning and they just kept going all in year after year even as the odds went down, even even going even as going all in still did not leave them with a great chance of winning at all. And eventually the bill came due where they had a terrible year in 2012. They did not have any cap space in the ensuing offseason and they were short on draft picks and they did, were short on young talent. And ultimately that led to Tannenbaum's firing after the 2012 season. And ahead here on the Lockdown Jets podcast, we'll talk about his successor, John Idzik. Bet online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Football might be over, but the NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. Bet online also covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV, with real-time updated odds and props on almost everything you can imagine. Bet online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Use promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, one word, no space, to receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Locked on Jets podcast on this Tuesday, talking about mistakes of past Jets general managers that Joe Douglas should take note of and try to avoid. And we've moved on to John Idzik, who was hired in the winter of 2013 after the firing of Mike Tannenbaum. And I have to tell you, in the years that have followed Idzik's tenure, my opinion has kind of changed. Not on Idzik's job performance, but on the issues within the organization that led to them. At the time, I really thought that Idzik just had no idea what he was doing. But in retrospect, I feel like he was kind of set up to fail. I feel like the organization just was not in a place where they were going to fix the problems. After Tannenbaum was let go, the Jets were in a very bad place. As I mentioned, there were things that really needed to, needed to change. Essentially, they needed an organizational overhaul. And they decided to not make one. They decided to let Tannenbaum go. And in retrospect, it almost seems to me like they were trying to give the appearance of change by getting rid of the guy at the top, but they did not change the things that they needed to change. And part of that was they made keeping Rex Ryan a condition of any general manager hire. And they also kept a number of key people in the front office, including Bradway, who, again, was a former general manager who did not do a great job while he was here and was an integral part of the front office that had 
created such an ugly situation. And these were things that really needed to change. There were th this organization needed a, an enormous overhaul, and instead, what they did was they just changed the guy at the top, but they did not empower the guy at the top to make the changes that needed to be made. Now, was this a case where the Jets hired a guy who just did not want to make changes that they would only give the job to somebody who came in and said, "I'm not going to make the necessary changes." I'm not going to overhaul the organization. Or was it a case where they hired a guy who just wanted to be a general manager so bad that he'd take it under any condition? I don't know. And when you put it in that sense, Itzik still deserves a lot of the blame because ultimately he either did not see that the Jets needed to make changes or he did not demand as a condition of taking the job that he be empowered to make the necessary changes. And, you know, at some point you have to say when you're being interviewed for these jobs, I'm only going to take it if you empower me to make the moves that need to be made so that I can do the job successfully. And the Idzik era was ugly. It only lasted two years and there were lots of failures in the draft. For his part, I mean, I don't think Idzik could evaluate talent very well. And that goes for both the draft and free agency. It was interesting free agency because Idzik had a reputation in free agency for being very frugal, for not spending a lot of money. But there were some overpays he made. The thing with him is that his overpays were not made at the top of the market. His overpays were made at the bottom of the market, where they were giving guys who just weren't that good, like Breno Giacomini or Dimitri Patterson, a lot of money for what they brought to the table. Now, it's not a lot of money in the sense that these guys were the highest paid players at their position. But if you look at the I mean, their talent level was pretty low. Their talent level was probably similar to players who got the league minimum. He was giving them a couple million dollars guaranteed. So there was poor evaluation skills on that front. And I also just got the sense that Idzik did not understand what being a general manager entailed. You know, in any industry you're in, the, the higher you ascend, the less it becomes about the actual industry. It's more about supervising. It's more about top level stuff. You know, when you become the general manager in the NFL, you're not breaking down film like you were as a scout. You're not going out to colleges frequently and talking with coaches the way an area scout might. You're dealing with more top level stuff. If there's some controversy involving your team, you have to be the face of the franchise. You have to speak with the media. And I think this was something Idzik just did not I guess this is no, no, not insider information. This is just something I got the impression from him. I don't think he enjoyed doing that. I, I, and that manifested itself in many ways, including a very infamous press conference he had halfway through the 2014 season. But I think the hiring of Idzik, at the time he was here, I viewed him as a guy who was just in over his head. And... I still think that. I mean, I still don't think he did a very I still don't think he was very capable as a general manager, but I viewed him as the problem at the time, and now I view him as more the symptom of the problem because the Jets brought in a guy who was not empowered to make the necessary changes. And even organizationally, the Jets were sending so many mixed messages where Idzik took an approach that many people viewed as thinking long term, yet within the organization, Rex Ryan was coaching for his job. And even if you go back to the 2014 offseason, when Idzik was not spending money in free agency, and the Jets did not have a great roster at the time, Woody Johnson was talking about how he was impatient and ready to go to the playoffs. 
And these created false expectations within the fan base. The, when the coach and the, the owner are talking like this and the coach knows he needs to have a winning season to save his job, while the general manager is looking at a bad roster and not making major changes in the offseason, it creates bad expectations for the fan base. It creates a situation where the team is undoubtedly going to fail, fall short of them, and you're going to create a very ugly situation when it comes to the way fans view the general manager. So, you know, Idzik did not do a good job. Part of that was there were not enough changes made, I think, in the front office. And I think part of that played into how poor the draft picks were. I think part of it, he just was not a guy who really understood the general manager job. I don't think he made very smart decisions. So some of this is on him. But ultimately, I think it was just a situation where the organization was not aligned. I think it was there was a lot of high-level stuff that was going on that maybe I did not appreciate at the time that I do now. Chain stores have different price tiers for professionals and do-it-yourselfers, but rockauto.com's prices are the same for everybody and reliably low. rockauto.com's a family business serving auto parts customers online for 20 years. Go to rockauto.com to shop for auto and body parts from hundreds of manufacturers. The rockauto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. Quickly see all the parts available for your vehicle and choose the brands, specifications, and prices you prefer. Go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. Write locked on in their how did you hear about us box so they know we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com This is the Locked On Jets podcast on this Tuesday talking about some of the failures of recent past Jets general managers and what Joe Douglas can learn from them. And we'll finish the show by talking about Mike McCagnan. And I'm not going to go too in-depth about Mike McCagnan because if you've listened to the show through the years, I've spoken extensively about his failures. So there are plenty of episodes in the past where I could point to issues with McCagnan. But ultimately, if I was to condense McCagnan's failures into one broad theme, it was just the general lack of planning. McCagnan was a really bad planner, and there was never really any coherent strategy behind his team building, at least none that I could figure out. I just always saw a bunch of series of moves and never really any sort of pattern where you could understand the way the guy was trying to build the team. And again, a lack of general planning. You know, a lack of the lack of planning, if you're looking for one example, I can come up with one. It was after his first year in the offseason heading into the 2016 season after the 2015 season. And DeBrickashaw Ferguson was getting older and his play did not justify the contract he was getting. And it was obvious that the Jets needed to figure something out because they needed to get Ferguson to take a pay cut. And there were not a lot of great options if Ferguson refused to do so. So they'd have to come up with a plan B. And McCagnan essentially waited way too late into the offseason before they approached Ferguson with a pay cut. And this is something I have on good authority. This is this is something that I, I've actually heard. And they waited too, like I said, they just waited too long. And Ferguson eventually retired, and the Jets were really in a bad place. So they ended up having to make a kind of a desperation trade for Ryan Clady. Which, I mean, what can I say? Most Jets fans loved it at the time, but in retrospect, it was really a des- desperation trade. 
And in trading for Clady, they left themselves without a fifth-round pick. And then the fifth round came that year, and the Jets really wanted Brandon Shell, so they had to trade a future fourth-round pick to get Shell. So they essentially had to trade a fourth-round pick for a fifth-round pick. Now, Brandon Shell actually turned out to be a pretty decent pick, one of McCagnan's few solid picks. But they had to give up a, a, a pick that was essentially turned into a trade where the Jets got negative value. You know, they should have, you know, it was just a general lack of planning where one thing led to another led to another. And even though they got a guy who actually turned into a decent player in Brandon Shell, they gave up too many resources. They should have been in a position where they just could have taken Shell in the fifth round. And those things may seem little, but they add up. And there were lots of them in McCagnon's tenure. He was a guy who came in and was touted as a draft expert, but there was never any ex- there was never any attempt to get extra picks after the 2016 season where the Jets had failed and clearly their roster was not up to where it needed to be. They embarked on what seemed to be a season long, a year long reloading process, a year long reset process. Typically when you do that, you do what what you've seen other teams do in that situation. They just get rid of all their players and they try and stockpile as many picks as they can. They try and trade down. They try and replenish the well of full of draft picks something the Jets have done over the past year when they've traded, you know, they've made a number of trades involving players, including one involving Jamal Adams, where they got multiple first round picks. The Jets never did that. Jets left themselves draft picks poor. And again, they had to give up a lot of picks to trade up for Sam Darnold because they needed a quarterback. And that left them vulnerable building the roster around Darnold because they did not have the resources they needed. You look at how the Jets dealt with the premium positions. They didn't. They did not deal with the premium positions under McCagnan. They were left bare, and there was never any sense of coherent plan. I, I could never figure anything out. It just felt like even in free agency, they were giving out big contracts. It kind of felt like they were giving out big contracts at random to players, whether or not they fit what the team was trying to do in their scheme on offense and defense. So there needs to be a coherent plan for roster building, and there needs to be a way to address premium positions. Those are some of the lessons I take from McCagnan. Anyway, that's all for our show today. Thank you for listening. This has been the Locked On Jets podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. As always, if you enjoy the show, subscribe to it and leave it a good review. I hope you have a good Tuesday, everybody. We'll be back tomorrow for our weekly mailbag.